professional audio slate in three, two, one. The Garner Andrews Show with Bryce Kelly presents That Was Close. Uh, so if you're making snake hot dogs boiled in urine, that's when you know you're in trouble. First I was afraid, I was petrified. Oh, we should have used that as a theme song. I Will Survive. That would have required uh, thinking ahead of time. And some deep, deep pockets. Yeah, big time. So instead, I've uh, been thinking that I could just sing. You know, I mean, this is the eighth episode, but it's not too late to yeah. come up with a theme song. Do you have one? I've been working on it, tinkering with it. It starts like this. Baby girl, baby girl, baby girl, baby girl, baby girl, baby girl. I'm getting good at that. You're getting good at uh, boy <laughs> band ease. You start every sentence with either girl or baby, baby girl. girl. I've lost it. Yeah. I was getting good. I was practicing with that stupid sound effect, and I ruined it. My name's Garner Andrews. That's Bryce Kelly. This is it. This is episode number eight of That Was Close. God, what a wild and crazy ride it's been. Yeah, a quick note off the top of this one. This story contains some pretty graphic depictions of killing and eating animals and one person's thoughts of suicide. So please take care when you're listening. Okay, well, that's intriguing. That means this one is going to, uh, it's going to pack a punch. Yeah, this, by the way, too, I kind of blew it. Usually I test you on what year it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you (laughs) accidentally spilled the bean. I walked into the room like, man, oh, man, 1994. That was quite the year in me. Oh, like I told you the year. But think about this for a second. Just on one of the previous episodes, I was saying 1976 may have been one of the greatest years for rock music in history. Let's go! But then 1994 came along, and 1994 was all like, hold my beer. Black hole sun. Oh, listen to these. Oh my. Soundgarden. Green Day. Oh, Weezer. All of these in the same bloody year. Yeah, just keeps giving. I'm a weirdo. Or how about... Offspring. Come out and play. And then, of course... Ah, back. I'm a loser, baby. So why don't you kill me? Not today. Yeah, 1994. That was a pretty good year, huh? Not too shabby. This week's tale of survival takes us on a journey back to April of 1994 in Morocco. Jeez, you know what else happened in April I know, I'm going to talk about that in a second here. Oh, my. Yeah, so Morocco, more precisely the Sahara Desert. And of all the deserts, the Sahara, it'd be the most famous, right? If deserts were songs, the Sahara would be Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, I think so. If I'm building a Mount Rushmore of Mm -hmm. deserts, yeah, Sahara's definitely on there. The Mojave would probably be like Bohemian Rhapsody. The Gobi Hotel California, maybe Freebird. Summer. 
I think, uh, yeah, Sahara, Stairway to Heaven. That's a good comparison. Now, have you ever heard of the Marathon de Sable, Bryce? Yes. Have you? As long as you have no follow-up questions. (laughs) Explain it to everyone else. Oh, yeah, because Bryce totally knows. I totally know. Some people say it's the most grueling foot race on Earth. It's 250 kilometers. Whoa. So 155 miles. It's the equivalent of running about six full marathons in less than a week through the Sahara Desert. So people willingly sign up Uh to race 250 kilometers through the Sahara. Uh Uh-huh. Typically, it takes people about six days to complete it. I mean, I like to golf, but that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) It's run in six stages. And I'm not going to switch back and forth between miles and kilometers. I'm going to do the story in kilometers. Yeah, baby. Metric all day. I hope that's okay. The race varies slightly in distance every year because they plan a slightly different route each year. But typically, the stages range in length. From one day where you run 86 kilometers, another day you run 42. There's a couple of 30-something days. in The final leg, though, it's only eight kilometers. Oh, that's amateur hour. I could probably do that leg if it was day one on a flat surface with an air temperature of about 14 degrees. Yeah, and if you gave me about, let's say, eight hours to complete Mm -hmm. it, I could do it. And my shorts weren't chafing. So not only are you running across the desert in April where the temperature regularly surpasses 100 degrees Fahrenheit, on top of it all, the runners, they all have to carry their gear. We're talking food, sleeping bags, maps, clothing, hair dryers, anything you're going to need out there in the desert. They also have to carry their own water, but they can fill their water bottles at the checkpoints along the way. So it's not like you have to carry a hundred liters of water on your back, but there will be times that the uh, runners are going to have to carry several liters of water to make it through to the next checkpoint. Sounds like a punishment, not fun. It does not sound like fun to me either. Yeah. There's other ways to challenge yourself. Sudoku comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah, take up knitting or something. Yeah. Now let's meet the star of today's show. He's an Italian runner by the name of Mauro Prosperi. Mauro? Mauro, M-A-U-R-O. He was born July 13th, 1955 in Rome. He was a police officer and a pentathlete. And maybe you're saying, what is a pentathlete? Or what is a pentathlon? Good question. Is that the one where you jump in water at one point? Well, yeah, there's some cross country in it. Oh, okay. I had to Google. There's different versions of it, but the most modern version of pentathlon, the one that Mauro Prosperi dabbled in, It was made of five events, shooting, swimming, fencing, equestrian, and cross-country running. Equestrian seems really out of place. So does fencing. It, it, yeah. I don't know how they arrived at these. Like, did they just randomly pull them off a hat? You got to swim, you got to run. You got to ride a horse. Yeah. You got to (laughs) fence. After graduating from high school, Prosperi got hired on as a police officer in Italy's National Police Force doing crowd control on horseback. And I'm guessing he probably had a gun, probably had to run after perps, maybe swim after perps. So he was he was a shoe-in for pentathlon when the sign-up sheet went up in the uh, staff room at police headquarters, probably. Jeez, if someone put up a sign-up sheet for a pentathlon here, I couldn't ignore that fast enough. I read a couple of accounts that said that he might not have been super thrilled about being a cop 
but he was a super competitive SOB and he loved sports. So to have a job that really supported his sporting nature, well, how can you argue with that? Sure. Back in the early days of his police and pentathlon career, he met a young woman named Cinzia Paglieri. Oh, baby. At a pentathlon. And they got married about six months after they met. Six months? They had three kids together. And I mention this because her name does come up later on in the story. Okay. Morrow was always running, always training for marathons and pentathlon events. If he wasn't working as a police officer, he was off somewhere for days on end, either training or taking part in races while the beautiful Cinzia was at home with the kids. It was his friend and training partner, Giovanni Manzo, that told Morrow about the Marathon de Sabla and that maybe he should talk to Cinzia about it, see how she might feel if he took off for the Sahara and, you know, ran across it while she held things down at home. Seems fair. And it's not clear, though, as to whether he actually did run this idea by her or if he just signed up for the race without consent. But either way, he was determined to run the race. I think I read that she was not thrilled about it, but mostly because of the dangers associated with it. And, well, he was a dad and somebody's husband and, you know, it was kind of necessary. Yeah. And maybe running 250 kilometers through the desert. Eh, yeah. Maybe that could go sideways for you. So Morrow's like, I don't care. I'm going. And he immediately got down to some hardcore training. He would work and then he would run 40 kilometers a day. Ugh. And he was reducing the amount of water he was drinking to prepare himself. He was trying to acclimate himself for the desert. Now let's fast forward to April 10th, 1994, which you referenced earlier. That is two days after Kurt Cobain was found dead. Come. As you are, as you were. I don't know why I'm adding this detail, but it, like that's what was just going on in the world right around the same time that this story was taking place. So that's what would have been dominating headlines. That's right. Kurt Cobain dies. So it's April 10th, 1994. Morrow is 39 years old. He and his bestie Giovanni and about 80 other runners begin the Marathon de Sabla in Morocco's Sahara Desert. It's interesting to note, too, that back in the day in 1994, there were 80 runners, maybe like 80 some runners. Now the race regularly sees like 1,200 runners. Oh, boy. So it's escalated quite a bit. Oh, yeah. For the first three days of the race, things were pretty normal. Mauro and his buddy Giovanni, they would start the day together running across the different terrain, dried riverbeds, jagged rocks, sand dunes. This sounds awful. But by afternoon, Mara, who was the more competitive of the two, he would put some distance between himself and his friend, but they'd meet up at the checkpoint, like the camp that night at the end of the day and compare notes. It was on day four of the race. So this is April 14th, the longest race day, which was about 85 kilometers that day, that Morrow was a man on a mission. He'd increased his position to fourth place in the race overall. So wow. he was climbing the ranks. He was feeling pretty good. But then he was like, if I run over there, you know, over those smaller sand dunes as opposed to these giant sand dunes, maybe I can climb another position or two in the standings. So that's what he did. The temperature that day had climbed all the way to 46 degrees Celsius. Oh, my God. That's 115 Fahrenheit. 
And I'm assuming in the Sahara Desert, there's probably not a lot of trees you can hide under or rivers you can dunk yourself in. No, I don't think so. It, oh. it, and not only is that kind of heat bad for you as a person, it also has a crazy effect on the weather. And before long, Moro found himself running blindly in a full-on sandstorm. And at this point, he thought he was still on the race trail. In a 1998 interview with Men's Journal, he said, When the sandstorm started to blow, I lost sight of everyone else. I kept running, though, because I thought I could see the trail. I didn't want to lose my standing. It was nearly dark before the winds relented. I started running again, but after a few minutes, it occurred to me. I had lost the trail. 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 Oh, no. And this sounds brutal because it lasted like eight hours, and Morrow kept running the whole time because not only did he not want to lose his place in the standings, remember, he's a competitive bastard, but he was also worried that if he stopped, he would get buried by a sand dune, like swallowed by the desert. He suffered from what I'll call human sand blasting because I'm a simpleton, but the blowing sand literally sanded his body, the inside of his nose oh. and his throat from breathing it in. Jeez. He eventually found a small bush for shelter and hunkered down for the night inside his sleeping bag. Yikes. So he's been running blind in the desert. For like eight hours in a sandstorm. Oh boy, I can see where this is going. The next morning he wakes up, the wind was calm, so he put his shoes on. And he ran for another four hours. He didn't see a soul or even a recognizable landmark or a race marker. Eventually, he ran up a large sand dune to try and get a better look at the lay of the land and to see if he could spot any of his fellow competitors. But he realized there was no one else out there. He was all alone. And that's when he realized he was in a real pickle. Oh, God. He was also completely out of water, almost completely out of water. Perfect. And he kind of had to nurse that, knowing that might be it for water for a while. But it wasn't enough water. So I think you know where this is going now. Oh, boy. Were we heading towards PP Town? Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Morrow said he remembered his grandpa telling him stories from the war about soldiers having to, you know, drink their own pee-pee. God, why has it always come back to the pee-pee? Has anyone been keeping track of how many of these stories <laughs> we've told in this series where pee-pee drinking becomes a thing? More than one, I know that. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, Morrow urinated in his spare water bottle, and he would be forced to drink that or die. 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 And it was at this point that he realized the race rules state that if you're lost, you're to stay put, don't move. And rescuers, like they'd come find you. That evening, while he was just hanging out, waiting and waiting and waiting for rescue, he heard the sound of a low-flying helicopter. Remembering that he had a safety flare in his backpack, he whipped that thing out, fired it into the air. The problem is it was like a, a dollar store flare or something. It's like the size of a pen from what I've read. And it barely did anything. So the chopper just went whizzing right by. And this is the part that really sucks. Morrow told an interviewer, he said he could see the pilot. He could even make out the color of the pilot's helmet. He was that close, but the pilot couldn't see him. Oh, boy. Oh, the panic that would be setting in. Oh, I know. And like I said a minute ago, the rules of the race state, hey, if you're lost... Stay where you are because it's hard to find you if you keep moving. But he was like, screw that, man. And he started walking. 
Because he was worried, and I kind of get this, he was worried that it would be more harmful to be out in the middle of the nowhere, just getting beaten by the sun. So he kind of took off. He was hoping to find some shelter, some water, maybe some food. But, you know, this being the desert, he was going to need a miracle. No 7-Elevens nearby? No. God, how good would a Slurpee be in that moment? How much time would you spend just thinking about a Slurpee? Like, then you'd have to go, no, pull yourself together, man. I mean, I spend on a normal day a lot of time thinking about it. So let alone lost in the desert, probably 23 and a half hours of the day. And the other half hour, you'd be thinking about ice cold beer. I'd be thinking about the odds of me having to dig a hole to go to the bathroom. And that's when the helicopter flies over and finds me. Would you even bother digging a hole, though? (laughs) Like, really? What are the chances somebody's going to just be wandering by and step in it? In my head, be like, oh, what if he is in first place and he's just so far ahead and he does his business on the track and then... Gets disqualified, gets DQ'd for... All the other runners are like, what are you doing, man? (sighs) But I guess that's not the case here. So he walked for hours until he spotted something in the distance. It was a small building and he thought, oh, thank God I found help. When in fact, what he found was a small marabout shrine. And I had to Google it. It's a a little shrine in the middle of the desert that passers-by, usually nomads or Bedouins, can stop at and they can take shelter in the little shrine when they're crossing the desert. Sometimes, though, they're an actual shrine that houses a dead holy leader, which is exactly what that one was. Oh, so that he showed up thinking help was going to be here and it was just a corpse. In a coffin. Inside. Gross. Uh, He went in, though. Obviously. I mean, you would too. So he was probably wildly disappointed that that there was no one there, but he was out of the sun. So he got himself set up inside with his very limited supplies. He had his backpack, sleeping bag, his pee-pee bottles, what was left of his food rations. He had a small one-burner stove with him. Wow. Yeah, like it would just be something that goes on top of a gas bottle, like a propane bottle. Okay, yeah. So, anyway, he uh, pulls out his little one-burner stove, and he cooked up what was left of his food, and he had to cook it in his own urine. Oh, boy. Oh. Oh, you know what else I read he did, too? <laughs> he had some, I don't, they're not called wet, white, you know the little wipes they give you after you have wings? Yeah. Whatever those are called. Wet naps. So, wet naps. He was so thirsty, he tried sucking the moisture out oh. of- of his wet naps. Or he'd go outside early in the morning and lick the dew off of a rock mm. that he found around the hut. Geez, boiling your urine for food. Oh. It's pretty hard to go into probably a little shelter, find a corpse, and somehow make the smell in there worse. Yeah. But he found a way. Here, I'm also thinking, though, in his backpack, remember, he's running a marathon across the desert. He probably doesn't have any salt to season his food. So, hey, look, you're half empty. I'm half full. He had an Italian flag in there. So, oh, of course. Yeah, he climbed up on the roof of this hut and he planted it up there, hoping that someone would spot it from the air and go, oh, there he is. Oh, that's actually smart. Yeah. And it was when he was up on top of the shrine that he noticed, hey, there are bats living in the roof. Oh, jeez. So, this next part's pretty disgusting. You might want to skip ahead a little bit, not too far. 
Okay, I'm not going to skip ahead. I can handle it. So he did that thing that Ozzy is pretty famous for. <laughs> okay, I don't know if I can handle it. He ate the bats. Oh, God, I can't handle it. He caught them, cut their heads off with his pocket knife, oh. stirred up the guts inside oh. like a pudding cup, oh. slurped them down. Good God. Welcome back. If you used the 15-second skip button, you really didn't miss much. <laughs> Good Lord. I read somewhere, too, that he claimed he ate 20 bats like that. 20 bats? Which, I don't... Wouldn't you get incredibly sick to your pants if you ate that many bats? Didn't he have a stove? Fry those bad boys. Uh. Urine fry them. And also, how dumb are bats? Because he gets the first bat, lops its head off, stirs it up, and drinks it. Yeah, and then you think the other bats would be like, "Whoa, this guy's a freak. Let's get out of here." Yeah, but instead they hung around. Stupid bats. Are you still like going back to eating twenty raw bats? Like, I once ate an undercooked pork chop, and I thought I was going (laughs) to die. And it was partially cooked. So he claims that he also caught bugs, beetles, lizards that he found outside the shelter. He also said that he ate snakes that he caught. Ew. I don't know how you catch a, I would imagine they're poisonous out there, but apparently he ate them raw, which is weird because all I could think about is he ever bought like bulk wieners. You peel that skin off of them and you eat them raw. Like, is that what it's like to eat a, Raw snake? I can't remember where I just heard this. Someone was talking about uh, when boiling hot dogs, instead of boiling with water, boil with beer. You're like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, So if you're making snake hot dogs boiled in urine, that's when you know you're in trouble. Yeah. That's a a lot of bad things. Or you know you're on a really, really bad first date. (laughs) (sighs) So anyway, he's been hanging out in this little hut now in the absolute middle of nowhere in the Sahara. When he hears a sound, it's the sound of an airplane. He rushes outside. He tries stomping out a giant SOS in the sand. And then he piles up all of his belongings. He goes back. He gets his backpack, his sleeping bag, some clothes. He lights them all on fire to create a smoke signal to catch the attention of the pilot. But wouldn't you know it? Just as soon as he gets that fire roaring, along comes another giant sandstorm and completely dashes his rescue hopes. Like, his fire is ruined by the sandstorm. And so is all of his possessions. Yeah, exactly. That's all gone, too. Great. So the sandstorm lasts another 12 hours. And Morrow rides that out inside the hut. So now he's at a real low point. I mean... He's not going to win the race or even finish. He's overcome with guilt for leaving his wife and his kids at home while he's out living the dream in the desert. So he finds a piece of charcoal and he uses that to write. This is inside the hut. He uses it to write his wife a letter on the wall, an apology uh, on the inside wall of the shrine with the hopes that when somebody finds his body, they can pass it along to his wife and his kids. He said he was really, really depressed at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, he's a very practical guy. He thought, if I'm going to die, I want to die inside this shrine because the likelihood of someone finding his body would be way better than if he just died somewhere out in the Sahara. And he, his reasoning was that if they couldn't find his body, 
his wife wouldn't get his police pension. Because if no body, how do you know he's dead? Jeez, the things you think about when you're in that situation. He was also starting to worry that starving to death or dying of thirst was going to be a very slow and agonizing death. So that night, he laid down to go to sleep. He took out his pocket knife and he slashed his wrists. Not the end of the story, though. No? No. Imagine his surprise when he woke up the next morning and he was not dead. Oh, jeez. I guess because of the dehydration, the blood clotted almost immediately, and voila, no death. Holy cow. He told an interview, you know, as crazy as it sounds, that actually invigorated him because he was, you know, it was a sign from somewhere else. This is not your time to die. So he regained his confidence. He was determined to survive. That morning... He decided he was going to have to roll the dice and walk away from his shelter, which would be very risky. You know, you're walking away from safety, but you know nobody's coming. I have to go find my own help. He walked for days. He said that he would walk in the early morning hours and then at night when the sun was, you know, and when the sun was at its hottest, he would find some shade, limited shade, like behind some rocks. I think he said he found like a cliff face he could kind of duck behind and get some shade over there. Wow. At night, he'd cover himself with sand for shelter and warmth. He found desert plants, succulents in the uh, dry riverbeds, and he could suck the moisture out of the leaves. That does not sound delicious. No, it does not. He also says he caught more snakes and more lizards, and he survived on that. Oh, God. Can you imagine how bad his breath is at this point? Oh, By day number eight of his disappearance, he came upon an oasis in the middle of the desert and he found a small puddle of water in it. He said he laid down next to that puddle and he tried to drink the water, but his throat was so swollen from dehydration that he couldn't get the water down. He said he actually puked up the first mouthful he tried to drink. He laid there next to the puddle for hours, most of the day having very small sips every now and again. He eventually, he filled his water bottle and he set off on foot again. Jeez, that's crazy. Finding a tiny puddle in the desert. And how stagnant would that water be? Oh, it's not good water. It'd be like drinking the water out of a used tire in your backyard that collects in the... Should have packed a Brita filter in that backpack. I wonder if he had one. I doubt it. Oh, jeez. That this part that he started to notice that like there was fresh goat poop on the ground... Okay. No, he did not eat it. That would be gross. Oh, geez, my head didn't even go there. Oh, oh, I thought that's what you're thinking. Oh, oh, God, that's what I'm thinking now. He also noticed footprints in the sand. He followed the footprints. He eventually came upon a young Tuareg girl. And I had to Google, and my oversimplified explanation is that a Tuareg is a, a people, nomadic people that inhabit that part of the Sahara Desert. They just live in the desert? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. So this girl absolutely freaks out and took off running because he looked like warmed over death. He was filthy. He was skinny. His eyes were sunken in his head. He probably looked like a skeleton in running shorts. So I don't blame that girl. No kidding. Imagine the feeling you've been lost for... Eight days now. Eight days in, you finally see another person. And their reaction is, eek! And then they start sprinting the other way. But the good news is the girl, I mean, she kind of got it together. She ran back to her camp 
and got her grandmother because she thought, I think there's something going on out there. So realizing that Morrow was not a skeleton and was in fact a real for real live human being, they took him back to their tent where there were a bunch of other women and the women gave him tea and goat's milk and he tried to eat some food, but again, barf. He just threw it into reverse. His body was throwing a fit. He couldn't keep anything down. Knowing that he was in rough shape and needed a doctor, the Tourigs loaded him onto a camel and took him to a village several hours away. Listen to this, though. When he got there, they were met by the military who blindfolded him and took him away and interrogated him for hours because they thought he was a Moroccan spy. Eventually, they're like, oh, wait, you're that runner that everyone's looking for, aren't you? So the word was out that there was a runner missing in the desert. So they stopped waterboarding him. Yeah, gave him a towel, dried him off, and then took him to the hospital. Now, remember, this is way before cell phones and social media. So Moro's wife, remember the beautiful Cinzia Pegliari? Stuck at home with the kids. Yeah, she's back in Italy. Didn't even know if he was still alive. She was aware of the fact that an Italian runner had gone missing, but it was days and days before she got word that it was her husband. And most of the news she was getting was from the newspaper. Like, she'd have to read a newspaper and find out how the rescue was coming along. Oh, you can't Google back then. No, it was 1994. So Morrow spent the next week in the hospital. When he was well enough, he called Cinzia back in Italy and said, Did you have my funeral yet? I'm sure they all had a pretty good laugh. Pretty dramatic. Yeah, she's stuck at home with the kids. He's off running some dumb race across the inhospitable desert. She's probably not finding much of anything funny, and I don't blame her. He had to be on his last legs. Do you think marriage-wise or... Oh, definitely marriage-wise. Yeah. But also just like, if he had not seen that girl in the desert... Yeah, if he had not followed the goat poop... (laughs) He would have been toast. Oh, yeah. In the end, Morrow had run nearly 300 kilometers or 185 miles off the course. Oh, jeez. He was 300 kilometers off the course. He'd actually crossed the border from Morocco into Algeria. He ran into that little girl, the one that uh, went and got help. That was in Algeria. Different country altogether. 300 kilometers off course. That's like Edmonton to Calgary. Yeah, that's how far off course he was. Yikes. He lost 33 pounds in those 10 days. Lucky. (laughs) But he also suffered some pretty serious liver damage. He had to just eat liquids or soup, put his food in a blender for months because he couldn't keep anything solid down. He also did permanent damage to his kidneys. But despite all that, he went back and did the race six more times. Excuse me? You know what? He went back and completed the race the following year. The next year? Yep. In 1995. And then he did five more times after that. I wonder if people knew who he was or if they're like, hey, did you hear some bozo got lost last year? And he was, he's, he's like, oh. <laughs> what a loser. Uh, oh, and his wife left him. Okay. I'm not shocked yeah. hearing that he went back six more times to do that same race. I can only speculate why. I have a pretty good idea why. I wasn't their marriage counselor, but the whole thing fell apart. That sounds about right. Oh, and there are critics that say he faked the whole thing for attention. I feel like that happens in almost all of these stories. 
There's always that feeling. Well, you know what? The founder of the uh, the race, the Marathon de Sable, is a guy named Patrick Bauer, who told Men's Health magazine, quote, Don't listen to Mr. Prosperi. His story is a fabrication. He will have you believe he is Superman. It is physiologically impossible for a man to travel more than 200 kilometers in the desert without water. This is a supernatural act. It's possible that he got genuinely lost for a few days, but all the rest rings false. We believe that early on he was picked up by someone and then he decided to hide out for a while. He thought he could make a killing out of this if he prolonged his ordeal. He thought he could sell his story to the tabloids. He aspired to be a star of his own movie. So that's the guy, the founder of the race. Mm, pretty heavy accusation. Yeah. But this, um, in 1995, so the year after this whole thing went down, a Roman documentary film crew, they went and retraced Morrow's route through the desert. And they actually found some of his stuff that he had left behind, especially in that hot shrine thing. I was just going to say, could they find that shrine and see the note he wrote to his wife? You know what they did find? A bunch of bat carcasses. Okay. Yeah. Sadly, that part. And who would make that part up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, in 2020, Morrow published his autobiography. Uh, it's in Italian. I won't attempt the Italian title, but in English, it means those 10 days beyond life. That's insane. It's it, I get what that, uh, the guy who runs the race, I see what he's saying, mm-hmm. that that long without water. Yeah. But he was, was drinking pee-pee. Can you survive off pee-pee for that long? I had don't, do you have some Mio or do you have something to put in it? Like give it a tropical fruit taste? I can't even drink tap water without Mio in it. So I don't know. Yeah, any of that country time lemonade oh, mix? Did I just come up with a new Pio? Pio. Wow. That is pretty good. Fun fact, the book was co-authored by his ex-wife, Cinzia. So the good news is, everybody, they're talking. Oh, sparks could be flying. Yeah. And that right there is the bonkers survival tale of Maro Prosperi and the Marathon de Sabla in Morocco's Sahara Desert. I can't believe he went back and did it six more times. I know, that's nuts. It's one thing that, like, conquering his fears, getting revenge on the Sahara. To keep going back. Yeah. Maybe read the room. You know what? I My sources for this one, and it's actually, it's fascinating. You can go to the Marathon de Sabla website and you can read, like, there's pictures. They've got all the rules, the registration forms. That's where I got a lot of this information. Also, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is your friend. Wow. Donate $2, won't you? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>